At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? I was uh, walking across uh, town in downtown Chicago a few years ago. I was invited to speak at a conference, and uh, a man who I admired, who is a teacher of the gospel that I appreciate, was walking from the hotel to the conference center. We happened to be staying at the same hotel when we were walking to the conference center. So I figured this was my opportunity to engage in conversation, kind of... uh, Uh, just to pick his brain about life and ministry. To my surprise, he seemed to be more interested in what was going on in my life than I was in his, and so he began to ask questions of me, questions about my family and about my faith, and I began to share with him, half joking, half lamenting. I got five kids at home. Me and my wife are barely keeping up, trying to uh, just stay, keep pace with them, and uh, A nap seems like a vacation. You guys know what I'm talking about if you've been through those young years uh, where the day seems so long and the year seems so fast. But we're having this conversation in the midst of it as we get to a red light crosswalk. He looks at me and he says, you know, you are a wealthy man. And I paused and I thought for a moment, what in the world is he talking about? We didn't discuss my bank account. We didn't talk about my salary. We didn't talk about my 401k or retirement plans or investments. And he went on to say, you're a blessed man because you have Jesus, because of your family. And I was reminded of how blessed I am. So my question for you today is maybe a little bit uncomfortable, maybe strange, maybe one that you've not been asked in a while or maybe even ever, but here's my question for you is, are you wealthy? Do you see yourself that way? Would you look in the mirror and say, you're a wealthy man? Would you look in the mirror and say, you're a wealthy woman? Maybe another way of asking the question is, how do you define it? How do you define wealth? This is critical. The way you answer this will determine your trajectory in life. In many ways, the way you answer this question will determine whether or not you live the good life or if the good or the blessed life will be so elusive to you that you find yourself constantly disappointed and in despair and ultimately disillusioned. So are you blessed? Would you describe your life that way? Would you describe to others that you are living the good life? I ask all these questions because this is what Paul wants us to ponder today as he concludes his letter to his understudy, his son in the faith, his uh, apprentice in the gospel, if you will, Timothy. We have been journeying through this letter that has been absolutely amazing, this study that Paul has invited us into as he's been writing to Timothy about the things that matter most. And as he arrives at chapter 6, he wants 
Timothy to understand the surprising answer to the question. How do you define wealth? Well, it might be a surprise to you. It is all wrapped up in one word. And we find that word in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 6. We're going to cover a number of verses today, but maybe one of the shortest of the verses we cover, but so full of godly wisdom. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 6, Paul says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I didn't get a lot of oohs and ahs. I didn't get shouts of amen. I didn't get claps or fist pumping. And that's because contentment very rarely gets that. But I will tell you that contentment is the absolute key to you living the good life, to you living a blessed life. And it is the absolute battleground that the enemy of your soul wants to steal from you and rob you of. So I want to read verse 6 together. If you don't mind joining me, reading aloud, let's do it together. Ready? Read. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's do it one more time. Ready? But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's the key. The key to unlocking um, wealth in your own heart, the key to you looking in the mirror and saying, I am blessed, is contentment. And the opposite of that, what will cause you to feel impoverished, what will cause you to feel like you're not living the good life, what will cause you to feel like you're not blessed, is discontentment. And I will tell you, discontentment has nothing to do with how many zeros you have in a bank account. It has nothing to do with how cute you are. It has nothing to do with your IQ. It has everything to do with how you perceive what God has provided and blessed you with. What Paul wants Timothy to know is that you have received the gospel. You have received the rich deposit of the Holy Spirit. You have received promises for this life and the life to come. You and I have received mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, a relationship with our sovereign and creator and Lord. We have received all of these things. And then some, we are blessed. But what the enemy would love you to do is not to focus on what you've received, but to look at what you don't have. What God has chosen in his wisdom not to give you. We're going to look at three ways that the enemy tries to discontent us today, but the, uh, the, the real big question that Paul wants us to consider is, what does it look like to finish well? How many want to finish well? And if you're going to finish well, you're going to have to continue to remain faithful now, but how do you finish well? Oh, man, this is one of those sermons I wish I would have got when I was 16 or younger, because when you're young, you're not thinking about finishing well. But now as I'm approaching 50, I'm thinking a little bit differently and recognizing, man, finishing well is important because at the end of the day, when I'm going to leave my children even more than the life insurance policy that I have, even more than any other possession that I will leave them will be a legacy of faith. And what I hope to leave them is a legacy of rich contentment in Christ, that Christ 
is our treasure, that the gospel is a gift. And if you have Christ, you have everything. How many believe that? Well, we will finish well when we focus our lives on pursuing Jesus Christ. That may seem simple. It may seem so simple that it's easy to neglect or overlook. It may seem so simple that it's easy for you to say, yeah, I got, I got Jesus, but I wish I had that job. I got Jesus, but sure could use a new car. I got Jesus, but, you know, I'm single. I wish I was married. I got Jesus. I'm married, but we don't have kids. I wish we had kids. I got Jesus. We got kids. We wish we didn't have these kids. <laughs> hey, I'm not talking to anybody specific. If that's you, just look straight ahead and say, ouch. I got Jesus, but I wish I had grandkids. I got Jesus, but I wish I was younger. I got Jesus, but I wish I had more money. I got Jesus, but, but when Christ is your all in all, you can say, I'm living the blessed life. I'm living the good life. I am living a wealthy life. Three things that will rob us of our contentment. The first thing is controversies. Paul wants us to keep ourselves from pride and foolish controversies. Look with me in verses 3 through 5, and then we're going to jump down to the last two verses of this chapter. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words and produce, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now jump down to verses 20 and 21. O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. He writes this with such an, an endearing heart. He calls Timothy at different points in this letter, his beloved son and the faith. Timothy, you could tell, is really dear to him. And he wants Timothy to finish well. He wants Timothy to be able to remain strong under the pressure of this life. And so that's why he ends with this prayer Grace be with you, because you're going to need the grace of God, because there is so much evil and deception in this world. How many know that our world is full of deception? It was a few years ago that the uh, term fake news became popular, and, um, and um, this whole thought of being in a post-truth culture became really pervasive as we begin to recognize that facts begin to matter less. What mattered more was emotionality, our feelings, and that's a dangerous place for any person to be, let alone any culture to be, because when we are there, we are exposed to controversy. And what controversy is, is a craving for 
knowledge. It's a craving to know something someone doesn't, to this one-upsmanship that I have some insight that somebody else doesn't have. And what Paul says is, guard yourself against this. Now, what he starts off with when he's talking to Timothy is a warning against false teachers. Once again, he goes back to this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree, that does not agree uh, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Now, let's stop right there. He says, again, just know that, that the gospel you've been given, the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, in that is found all the wisdom you need, all the answers you need, all the clarity you need. How many find that, that when you go into the Word of God, you get clarity? How many find that? How many find that you get encouragement? that you get grace, that you get strength, right? So everything we need are in the words of Jesus. Just like Peter says in John chapter 6, when speaking to Jesus, where else will we go? Because you alone have the words of eternal life. Life comes to us as we encounter the words of Jesus. So what Paul wants Timothy to know is don't get tricked into thinking that you have to pursue some secret knowledge, don't get tricked into thinking that you have to be on the edge, the cutting edge of information. And whatever you do, Timothy, don't become a great debater because God has not called you to be a great debater. He's called you to be a faithful follower of his word. Now, how many in here, by the show of hands, love to debate? Come on, show me your hands. Here's how you know you got it bad. You don't even need to uh, remain on one side of the argument. It's almost like, hey, you pick whatever side you want. I'll take the opposite, and I can argue just as well one side or the other. I just like arguing. Anybody in here know what I'm talking about, right? Birds of a feather. All right. All right. We'll leave it there. But the challenge of that is, the challenge of that is, is that when that is you, when that is me, and I have some of that affliction as well, we better guard our hearts and guard our souls because what the enemy wants to do is to make you discontented by saying there's some secret knowledge, there's some information, there's some controversy that you need to insert yourself into and what Christ has called us to is peace. That means, here's the deal, it doesn't mean you avoid all controversy. If, if something comes to your doorstep that you have to speak clarity into, you deal with it. But you don't go looking for it. Because when you go looking for it, look at what happens. He goes on to say he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produces. What does it produce? Envy. So next thing you know, you have envy in your heart. Then there's dissension. So now there's division between people, slander, evil suspicions. You become suspicious of everybody. Look at what's happening to your soul as you uh, thirst after controversy and constant friction among people. But notice what the right teaching does. How do you know you have the right teaching? Well, according to Paul, there's a number of ways we can answer this, but one of the ways you know you have the right teaching is what it produces in your life. Godly teaching produces godliness. 
Godly teaching produces godly living. I've seen a lot of people leave the Christian faith. And I have rarely, if ever, seen somebody leave the Christian faith and grow in godliness. Because the number one reason why people leave the Christian faith is because they don't want an authority over them. They want to do what they want to do. So you can piece together your own brand of spirituality so that you can pretend that you're connected to a higher power or to something beyond this life or something metaphysical. But the reality is, is that all you're doing is putting on fig leaves to cover up your nakedness because when you don't have Christ, what you have is autonomy. You're a God unto yourself. And don't get me wrong, what most people won't admit to you is that's why I've left the faith. What most people will do is make up reasons, reasons that really aren't true. But the primary reason that they're leaving is because of the, the lack of desire for godliness. So I'll find faults with some historical issue that's already been settled. Or I'll find contempt with the character of God in some way that has already been addressed. Or I'll make up some issue if I have to. Or I'll let church hurt or something else do it. But really what it ultimately is, is I want to do me. One of the worst sayings that our culture has adopted is just do you. When you follow your own emotions, this is where it will leave you in envy, in dissensions, in slander, in evil suspicions, with friction with all people. That's where you'll find yourself instead of in godliness. So what is the teaching producing within you? Well, one of the things I want to give you is a homework assignment. And this is going to be a really hard homework assignment, but I need you to do it. Here's the homework assignment. I want you to evaluate. It's a two-parter. I want you to evaluate your words, your manner of speech. And I want you to ask yourself, are my words and my manner of speech encouraging myself and others towards godliness, to live peaceable lives, content in Jesus? Is that what my speech encourages? Or is my speech more centered upon controversy? frictions among people. Is that where most of my speech is at? And I encourage you to be honest with yourself. And that's not the hard part of the homework assignment. The hard part of the homework assignment is I want you to ask someone else. Someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. Someone who hopefully you respect and admire. Hey, when you hear me talk, is it encouraging godliness, faith in Christ, contentment? Or am I more prone to talk about controversies, contentions, fractions among people? What am I more prone to talk about? Now, I just want to say this humbly. I'm not preaching at you. I'm, I'm, I'm a brother in Christ who's opening the word of God with you and saying we're all at risk of this. I was reminded of this earlier this week 
because our generation has a word for, for controversy or maybe it's a phrase. How many have ever heard the phrase clickbait before? Anybody ever heard that word before uh, or that phrase? Uh, clickbait, if you don't know, is um, in the internet and social media age, it's um, a headline that is so juicy that it arouses your emotions without you even reading the article or checking the context. You just see it, and the next thing you know, you are sharing it with other people. Now, I would ask how many have done that, but I don't want you to embarrass yourself. So let's assume that we're all at risk of doing that, and I certainly fell prey to that this week. Now imagine this week, while I'm preparing to give this message, falling prey to controversy. But this week, I was on a social media site, and I saw what was the equivalent of probably a two-minute clip of teaching from um, a popular preacher. And um, everything I heard in that um, 120 seconds, the two-minute clip, to me sounded to be the opposite of the gospel. And so as a good Christian, I shared it. Um, that was not a good Christian. But I, I, I sent it to uh, a friend. I sent it to a friend. And my friend did the exact right thing. My friend texted me back and said, interesting, have you listened to the entire message so that you can hear that statement in context? Now, let me ask you that, this question. Was that what I was hoping for? <laughs> no, it's not what I was hoping for. I was not texting you to get a homework assignment. I was texting you because I wanted you to get a thumbs up to say, I'm as outraged as you are at this. But my friend did the right thing. And so I did the homework assignment. And I went back and listened to the 35-minute message or sermon that was preached by this person. And while at the end of that sermon, I certainly had some nuances of difference, what I came to realize was the context in which the statement was being made, the thought pattern behind the statement, and where legitimately I could see someone landing there even though I had landed in a different place. It gave me, in other words, a greater grace for that person it gave me, in other words, a greater understanding of that person, and it helped me to know where I needed to be praying as opposed to simply debating sound bites, clickbait. I bring that up, even at my own expense, to be able to warn you, friends, that we need to be careful of controversy because all it does is produce discontentment. And as long as you're focused on that, you're not focused on the treasure you have in Christ. You're not focused to the blessing that we have in the gospel. You're not focused on the fact that, man, I am living the good life now because if Christ is in me, I have everything. Amen? Well, um, the second thing that he wants us to guard our hearts against is to guard our hearts against discontentment because of money. Look at what he says in verse number six. We've already read it, but let's read it again. I'll read it. You can listen, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot 
take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. He goes on to say, jump down to verse 17, if you will, with me. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They ought to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take a hold of the, that uh, which is truly life. Man, you talk about verses we can look at for the next several hours and, uh, and still not get all of it. It's these verses. I'll just spend a few minutes, though. Uh, what Paul is very clear with here with Timothy is that any definition of wealth that is based off of the external is a false definition. It's like the businessman who was once asked, how much is enough? And his response was, a little bit more. And for many of us, that's how we live. How much is enough? A little bit more. And the enemy knows that. And so he constantly has you focused in on, again, what you don't have. And this, yes, is particularly focused on money, but it, it goes beyond that. For me and the family that I grew up in, uh, wealth was defined educationally, academically. I grew up in a family of educators. My dad was a longtime teacher, later on professor. My in-laws are educators, and so um, we got it bad. I'll just put it this way. My siblings and I, all of us have pursued multiple degrees, and, and all of it has its place. I'm not here to condemn education. It has its place, but when education becomes a dominant force in your life, you start getting warped in your thinking. And so for me, this is, this is how I'm wired. For me, I could take a test, right, and get a 98% on it. How many are excited about a 98% on a test? How many think that's pretty good, right? Not me. When I go home, I'm thinking about that 2% that I didn't get. It's the question. I'm thinking, like, how in the world did they mark that one wrong? I could have had 100%. I can't believe and the enemy will have you falling off a cliff over the 2%. Now, that's humorous on one level until it gets serious. And I got a sister who's super bright but almost lost her life over this. My sister went through all of school, um, elementary, middle school, high school, all A's. She was all A's. She graduated from a prestigious high school in Detroit as the valedictorian, went on to U of M, did really good her first semester, got her first B, and um, attempted suicide. Now, God was merciful. He preserved her life, and through the help of counseling, she was able to rework her thinking. But, but this is the game of the devil. This is the battlefield of the devil. Instead of causing you and I to celebrate what we have, his constant taunting of us 
is look at what you don't have. Look at what you wish you had. Be careful on how you manage your longings. It's okay to want more as long as you don't think you need more in order to define wealth. In order to define the good life or the blessed life, you have to be able to define that internally, not externally. You can't let that power be given to an external force. You have to make sure that that's defined internally because of the living hope of the gospel that is within us, because of the rich deposit of the Holy Spirit that is within us, because of the promises of God that are in our hearts, we have to have contentment. Now, and here's what Paul's logic is. Follow his thinking. You brought nothing into this world. Amen? Amen. You will take nothing out of this world. Amen? Amen. Now, I know we accumulate stuff as if there's going to be a U-Haul connected to our caskets and we're going to take it all into heaven with us. But how many know it's not going down like that? All the trinkets you invest in, all the toys you accumulate will be left to someone else. They will rust, be given away, and I promise you the stuff that you value so much, your kids will not. And their kids after them will not. Right? So the reality is, is we appreciate the blessings that come to us, but contentment, wealth, is defined uh, simply simply (laughs) as being content. And he says, listen, if you got food and you got clothes, then you're blessed. How many of you had the privilege of growing up with a mom like mine that when you didn't finish your food reminded you there are starving (laughs) kids, you insert the rest? Right? It was their way of saying to us, you're blessed. You got running water. You know how many people in the world wish they had that? You got electricity. You got breath in your lungs. You got a future ahead of you. Don't let the enemy rob you over the 2% you don't have. Don't let the enemy rob you over the promotion you wish you had, over the things, the battles you wish you won, because what will happen in your life is absolutely devastating. Look at what he says will happen in our lives. Pick it up in verse number eight. But if we have food and clothing with these things, with, with these, we will be content. Everybody say amen. There's that word again, contentment. But then verse number nine, look at what it says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Look at how it builds. First, I come to the place where I don't feel blessed. I don't feel content. I feel like I'm missing out on something, and that angst opens me up to temptation. 
That temptation then leads me into a snare. Now I'm ensnared by this desire. Once I'm ensnared by this desire, now I'm doing all type of senseless and harmful things. I got these senseless and harmful desires that are warring against my heart, and ultimately it's going to plunge me into destruction and ruin. Do you see what happens when you let discontentment settle in? Do you see what happens when you get to the point where you say, man, if I just had that, I would be blessed? If I just had that opportunity, I would be rich or wealthy? Friends, we got to guard our hearts, and we have to make sure that we don't let external things define the internal reality of how blessed we are. But there's a third thing that Paul wants us to be guarded against. And that third thing is not only don't let your heart become discontent because of controversy, not only guard it against money. And I do want to say one more thing about money. So often we misquote verse number 10. How many have heard this, that money is the root of all evil? Show me your hands if you heard that before, right? He doesn't say that, does he? He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, now here's the thing, here's the thing. The love of money is another way of describing that is when we love money more than we love God. When we love money more than we love people. Don't ever let your heart get there. Don't value money. See, see, this is a whole statement about valuation. Don't ever value money more than you value what is most important in life. Many of us put way too high of a valuation on money. There are people in here, in this room, that value money more than you value your health. You're losing sleep. You're getting sick because you're pursuing external definitions of wealth and riches. There are people who value money more than they value their family. Losing your relationship with your kids, your spouse, all because of a definition of success that's so elusive. There are people who value money, put way too high of a valuation on money, value money more than they value their relationship with God. And your soul is in danger and you don't even know it. Don't overvalue money. It has its place, but it's certainly not more important than God or with people. And what is the greatest buffer or protection against greed? It's generosity. This is such an apologetic for investing in the spread of the gospel. Because when we are open-handed, we are saying to our possessions, you don't possess me, I possess you. You don't use me, I use you for the spread of the good news of Jesus. That's why you invest in the local church. It's more than just keeping lights on. It's about making sure my possessions don't possess me. And this monster of discontentment doesn't take over my life. Well, he concludes, if I could, by saying, don't become discontented with uh, the wrong pursuits. Pursue the light and life of Christ. Look at what he says. Verse number 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, 
gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's a beautiful way to end this powerful letter. He says, listen, don't go chasing after all of these things. Don't let the wrong pursuits grow in you a discontentment. But you pursue God. You pursue godliness. And remember the confession you made before many witnesses. How many remember professing Christ? How many remember that? Three of you. Okay, great. I'll talk to this side of the room. How many remember baptism? How many remember telling the world, he is mine and I am his? How many remember celebrating the fact that I've been redeemed? How many today still celebrate the fact that my sins are gone, that I have been forgiven, that I have Jesus and I am in Christ? How many thank God for that? That's the confession. And he says, don't forget that confession. Finish well. And how do we finish well? Well, verse number 15, and this is the 14, and this is where I'll conclude. He says, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, listen. How does a student finish school? In particular, during the tough days. I mean, tests, quizzes, studying, missing out on parties and games and all that stuff. How does the student finish? They keep graduation in mind. How does a marathon runner finish the race? When their knees are sore, their feet are blistered, it's hard, it's a mental game now. How do you finish? Remembering the finish line. How does a Christian finish the race? When persecution and pressures come from the culture around us, living today in light of that day, he says, don't lose sight of the fact that he's coming back again. Jesus is coming back again. And when he comes back, the world's definitions of wealth won't matter. There will be one definition of wealth. And that will be Jesus Christ, my all in all. And if you have Christ, you already have everything. So don't let the enemy rob you. Trust in him. Rejoice in him. And know that you are blessed. Let's stand all over this church. To the blessed, the only sovereign, 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Father, I pray that today, if there be anyone in here that needs your grace and your love and your salvation and has not tasted of it, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that today would be the day of decision, that we wouldn't chase after the world's definitions, but we would trust in you. You are our everything. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people say it. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.